I greet you in Christ's name this morning. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. We're going to be using that for our text. As you can already tell, I'm struggling with the voice this morning. I came down with a doozy of a cold this past week. I uh, covet your prayers. The, the book of Hebrews contrasts two covenants for the early church and for us. And the passage today contrasts the worship experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai and the worship we are called to under the new covenant. So much has changed, and yet it's the same God that we worship. He is an awesome God. In our passage today, it talks about two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And it contrasts the worship that happened at Mount Sinai with that which will happen at Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem. At Mount Sinai... There was a focus on externals bringing us into awe and reverential fear of God. The big deal at Sinai was that of fear. The Bible says that Moses was terrified. The people were terrified. They couldn't bear what they saw and heard. The mountain was burning with fire. There was darkness and gloom and storm. There was a loud trumpet blast. There was an unbearable voice, a terrifying sight. In contrast, we look at Mount Zion in our passage today is going to give us a joyful assembly of the redeemed with a focus on heavenly worship, which involves an internal change in our hearts. On Mount Zion, the key word is going to be that of joy, not fear. I think the Israelites needed to hear, needed to learn what an awesome God they were serving. And I think God wanted to impress them with His holiness. Thank you. His separateness, His intolerance for sin. The Israelites had been in, in Egypt for many generations, and they were exposed to the gods of Egypt. They needed a radical exposure to the true God. And they need to understand what holiness is. The focus on Mount Zion, as I mentioned, is that of joy. It's a heavenly Jerusalem, a secure place. A city of the living God. Thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What a glorious place that will be. There, there will be a God who is approachable. There will be Jesus, our Redeemer. In one sense, God has not changed since the Old Testament times. And our worship of Him is still to be done in reverence and awe. But along with that reverence, there is a joyful heart. So thankful for the redemption that was accomplished at Calvary once and for all along with the image of a God who shakes the mountain, we need to understand that He welcomes us to come to Him 
in the joyful assembly on Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. I invite you to open your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 12, if you haven't already done that. And we'll begin reading at verse 18. Let's stand together to read Hebrews 12 and verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no one, no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You may be seated. I don't know how you view worship. I would like to, this morning, affect your view of worship. I would like to remind us of what worship is and what it really means to worship. To many of us, worship is a Sunday morning in church. That's what worship is to us. We come together, we sing songs, we pray together, we listen to the Word, and that's what worship is to us. To some of you, Worship is listening to classical music. You can worship that way. To others of you, you worship by walking through the woods, through nature. For many of us, our worship time throughout the week is our quiet time that we spend in the morning with the Lord. But what exactly is worship? I'd like to define that for us. I would like to say that worship is loving God. That is the essence of worship. And I take that from the first command and the greatest commandment that Jesus quoted in Mark chapter 12. <clears throat> Reading from verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important. 
The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Worship is loving God. Worship is our connection to God with our heart, he says, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength. Worship is a very personal response to God. It's finding fulfillment in God, allowing Him to satisfy us as we worship Him. It's prostrating every part of us in service to Him. And I think that each one of us find our worship experience a little different. And I don't think that we should feel that worship should be put as put out as a cookie-cutter type of thing, that everybody worships the same. The way that we worship is the way that we love God, the way that we relate to God. It's the way that we express our love to God. I think even in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see that different people had expressed their worship in different ways. Abraham built altars. That's how Abraham worshipped. He built altars. Everywhere he went, you read the account in Genesis, it says he stopped and he built an altar. That's how he worshipped. He was religious in his outlook. He showed his love by sacrificing at an altar. He showed his devotion to God in that way. In the New Testament, we read of Mary, a friend of Jesus. Mary worshipped by sitting at Jesus' feet and listening. She worshipped. Her approach of worship was one of contemplation. She worshipped with her mind. Martha worshipped by serving. She gave her hard work to God as a sacrifice, I think. David, the king, was an enthusiastic worshipper. David worshipped with enthusiasm, with celebration. The Bible says that he danced before the Lord. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it was very enthusiastic. It was very celebratory when David danced before the Lord. He sang beautiful psalms of praise. He played on instruments to worship. He had a heart after God. He loved God deeply and was devoted to him. And so many of the psalms that we read and love today are are written out of his experience. The early church worshipped in a corporate way. They got together to worship. In the book of Acts, we read the account of them meeting for prayer and the place was shaken, the Bible says. Do you feel it? I don't feel a shaking right now, maybe a little later. But they met together and worshipped corporately. Where is your place of worship? Where do you worship the best? A woman had that question for Jesus. We know her as the woman at the well. John 4 verse 19 says, uh, quoting the woman, he says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. How do you love God? How do you express your love for God? What is your place of connection to God? You know, as a church, we're very conservative in our worship, in our corporate worship experience. And it's easy to be judgmental of other churches that do it differently. I think we need to be careful about that. I think we need to be careful about judging exactly how others worship God. I don't object to raising hands in in a worship service. I would love to see more of that when the focus is on God, when the focus is in, in true worship. Nothing wrong with clapping your hands when God is being worshipped. There's nothing magical or special about that. But it is an expression of our love for God. I read a book not too long ago called Sacred Pathways. Um, Gary Thomas. I recommend the book. It's a, it's a good one. And I used some of his outline uh, for our points this morning to the message. I want to look, first of all, at what I call sensory worship. And that is where we love God with our senses. I don't know if you've thought of it that way, but God gave us our senses that through senses we could worship Him. Our eyes, our ears, even our taste and touch and smell. And nature can provide that sensory experience for us. The way that we enjoy nature can be an avenue of worship for us. The creation and the great outdoors is God's cathedral. We can see behind the creation of a flower or the violence of a storm the very nature of God himself. I invite you to turn to Psalm 19. I want to read the first six verses out of Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1. says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. I think in the early 
stages after the creation, God met the first family in the garden, in the cool of the evening. And as they walked together through the garden, beautiful garden, through the trees, past the flowers, they learned to know God through these contacts in the setting of nature. I think Jesus in the New Testament often taught out in nature, and he may have been pointing as he gave those parables to the various objects that he was talking about. The flowers, the birds, the harvest field, and the reapers. In 1998, John Glenn went back to space. I don't know if you remember the account I do. He had gone way earlier, but then he went back as an older man, and he got in the, uh, in the spaceship and went back up in, into orbit. He was 78 years old when he went. Almost immediately, he was overwhelmed, the account says, with the presence of God. In a press conference after his return, he said, looking at the world from this vantage point, looking at this kind of creation, and to not believe in God, to me, is impossible. John Glenn early space pioneer who went back later. Being in creation in itself is not worship. We don't worship creation. We don't worship the flowers. We don't hug the trees. But it can be a sense. It can be an avenue. It can be a cathedral for us if we allow it to be as we revel in God's awesomeness in creation. As we humble ourselves before God, as, as God becomes real to us through his creation. I read a uh, short verse of a poem <clears throat> that to me is very profound, and I'd like you to listen to it carefully. And many of you may know this, this verse. It's written by Elizabeth Barrett Brown. She says that earth's crammed with heaven in every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest of us sit around and pick blackberries. I want to read that once more. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest of us sit around and eat blackberries. Pick blackberries. So in nature, we need to be careful not to idolize nature itself. It is the God of creation that we worship as we go out into nature. And it can be a form of worship for us. Another sensory form of worship is that of music. How many of you can worship in, in, in listening to good music and singing? Many of you can. I would say most of us can. Music is a... Uh, is a way to worship God. It motivates our emotion. It can stir us. It's very powerful. And you know, today in today's churches, many of our modern churches, uh, music is synonymous with worship, and they've basically considered them almost interchangeable. They are not, but it can be an avenue of worship. It can be very uplifting, If it's good music, it can be very much the other way if it's not good music. 
It stirs us. And it should be the kind of music, as we learned a few weeks back with with John D. Martin here, it should be the kind of music that draws us toward God. I uh, listen, have listened many times to uh, George Friedrich Handel's The Messiah. And the first time I really, really worshipped, I think, listening to that music was in a concert. And uh, someone had gotten us tickets to a concert right up front of the orchestra. And I sat there for three hours just in rapt worship. I, they, the words were there. I was able to follow them and listen to them. And I was just, it was really, really a blessing. There's something about the awesomeness of that that causes us or can cause us to connect with God. Beauty through our senses can do a number of things for us. And number one, it can bring on humility. As we humble ourselves before God, it can bring on dignity and a sense of our Father God. The beauty of worship can be in, in beautiful music. The next kind of music, the next kind of worship that I want to look at is that of traditional worship. Like we're doing this morning. We traditionally gather every Sunday morning pretty much in the same way. And we go through the rituals of worship. I don't know how many of you think about it, but we have very much the same way that we worship every Sunday morning. We come in here in church and we sing some songs, we, we pray, we, we listen to the Word, and we, we, pray, and we pray again and, and so on. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with the traditional kind of worship. It brings with it its own set of positives and can also become very traditional in that it, we lose the sense of worship. I read an illustration about how tradition can affect people. Uh, there was this little church up in upstate New York, little I believe a Catholic church or some very traditional church. And for many years they had this old rector who led their worship priest. And uh, he retired. He was very popular. And the new priest came into their church and began to conduct their worship services. And after a little bit, after a couple of Sundays, he began to sense that something was wrong. The people were not happy. And uh, he said, I'm doing something wrong. I know I get that sense every once in a while when I'm up front. I'm, something is wrong. I don't know what it is. Um, but there's something wrong. And uh, finally, he, it got bothering him so much that he asked one of the parishioners, he said, what's wrong? What's wrong? I sense something's wrong. What am I doing? Am I, am I doing something? Well, the prisoner said, it's the way that you do communion. He said, you're not doing it right. You're missing out a step. He said, what? what? I'm doing it right. I'm sure I'm doing it right. Well, he said, our previous rector, before he would take the, the cup and administer 
the wine and, and to everyone, he would walk over and, and touch the radiator on the side of the church building, the old heater, and then he would administer the communion. He did that every time. The young priest said, I, I, no, I've never read that in any of my books. And so he called up the old man and he says, uh, what, did, did you touch the radiator every time you did communion? What, what's up with this? He said, yeah, he said, I always did because I wanted to get rid of the static charge in my hand so that I wouldn't shock people. And that church got the nickname, the Church of the Holy Radiator. <laughs> Tradition in the minds of these un unschooled older people was very strong. Jesus instituted the communion service for us in this one way that we worship. Helps us remember his shed blood and broken body. He told us to wash each other's feet as part of that service we wash each other's feet. We conservatives, conservative Mennonites kneel to pray. Many times we'll kneel to pray. I think that's kind of losing out. I don't know what you think, Brother Leon, but it seems like we're not kneeling as much as we did at one time. But this is a tradition that we have is to kneel to pray. It can be significant in worship or not, as the case may be. It depends whether our heart is kneeling as well, along with our bodies. The singing, the meditation, the Bible study can be very traditional. But in order for it to be worship, our heart must be in it. Our heart must be loving God. You know, if you're here this morning just warming up the pew, and you're here because it's the thing to do, and you're, and, and you're, you're joining in the singing maybe a little half-heartedly, you're, you're kneeling to pray. You're doing all the right things. But if your heart is not in it, it's not worship. It's not worship. Worship is when our heart connects to God. And the symbols that we use in worship can even be dangerous if they take the place of real worship. If they stand in for real worship. One example in the Old Testament was the brazen serpent that Moses made for the people. Um, God told them to do that, and they, and they looked at the serpent and were healed. But later on, they worshipped the serpent, and it became an idol to them. And that is the danger of traditional worship. <clears throat> the next place of worship I want to talk about is intellectual worship. It's loving God with our mind. I don't know if you've experienced it, but I have. When all of a sudden I'm reading the Word or I'm listening to someone preach and a truth about God jumps out and gets me. A truth that I had not really grasped makes an impact. 
and I worship because my connection with God has been enhanced. Because I've learned something new about God. Something new about how I can relate to God. And my worship is increased. We promote the emotion. And at about this time of the year, a little bit ago, we saw a lot of chocolate hearts over Valentine's Day. Maybe they should sell chocolate brains. Have you ever thought of that? Because it's really with your mind, isn't it? I mean, your heart is pumping blood. It's not really part of this thing. We love God with all our hearts and with our minds. And when you're listening to the Word being taught, one of the ways that you can show that you're worshiping is to say amen. I encourage you to do that in, in a worship service. Something blesses you, something makes an impact to you, and something connects, say amen. That is an indication that you are, in fact, worshiping. Worship with my mind. It can have dangers. We can become proud and and, and built up with knowledge and and, uh, not worship but it is very important to know, to understand God, to worship with our mind. The next type of place of worship I want to look at this morning is that of contemplative worship. And I was convicted as I was looking at this in my own life <clears throat> with this area of worship. It's called contemplative worship. It is where I sit before God and contemplate God. We're so busy with doing and seeing and taking care of things that we don't sit before God in contemplation. The psalmist here, Psalm 63, I want to read this psalm. I believe knew what it was to worship God contemplatively. He says in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Contemplative worship. I don't know how it is with you, but this is an area that we need to worship God in, is to contemplate God, to sit quietly before God and allow Him to to satisfy us. That's what contemplative worship is, 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 is in absorbing God, loving God, just sitting there and loving God. You've observed a young couple who's very much in love, just sitting there, and they don't even have to be saying anything. But they're absorbing each other. They're just, they're just enjoying each other's presence. And I think that's what contemplative worship is. 
is to take in God. And I think that should be part of our daily worship experience. Take that extra 10 minutes and contemplate God. Contemplate God. Sit there and allow God to fill you. Allow God to to meet that need that only God can do. That only God can 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 satisfy that hunger that's within us. Thomas Merton wrote, he says, the fact remains that contemplation will not be given to those who are willfully who willfully remain at a distance from God, who confine their interior life to a few routine exercises of piety and a few external acts of worship and service performed as a matter of duty. God does not manifest himself to these souls because they do not seek him with any real desire. God, give us that desire for him. Seek his face. Sit quietly. Learn to appreciate his love. You are the only one who can give your personal love to God. No one else can do it for you. He loves us each so much and desires to meet with us every day. He is pleased when we sit before him in worship. I think it's something we need to, con- we need to cultivate is contemplative worship. Number five, sacrificial worship is taught in the scripture. The sacrificial acts that we do for the Lord are a very real part of worship. One of the most profound ways we can love God is to love others. 1 John 4 verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. I want to share with you a story that uh, Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Pathways, shares his own personal experience. Gary was in college and he was friends with a handicapped man who was on a wheelchair there. Gary, I need some help. I winced. I knew what was coming, but I didn't want to hear it. Gordy moved his wheelchair a little closer and whispered, I had a little accident. Sure, no problem, Gord. I answered, let's go take care of it. Gordy attended the same university as I, but he was in the advanced stages of muscular dystrophy. He was just two years away from dying of pneumonia, which frequently ends the lives of those suffering from MD. Of all the things I remember his feet the most, 
They showed all the signs of never being used. Gordy had been unable to walk for 10 years by the time I met him, and he wore slippers instead of shoes. In our privatized world, I've met very few people who don't admit to some insecurity about their feet. Foot washings commemorating Christ's work at the Last Supper are enough to keep many of us from church. But Gordy was silent. He knew I would see everything, but he said nothing. It was as I was putting on his socks one day that I realized that Gordy was the Holy One in all our efforts. He was serving me and in some very practical ways, sacrificing the privacy of his body to do it. I was so disabled inside, afraid to let people see my faults and struggles because my disabilities could be hidden. Gordy's outward disability became, in a very real sense, my inward cure. His willingness to let another see his weakness revealed an inspiring inner strength. <clears throat> One Saturday morning, I woke early and made my way to the men's bathroom. As is not uncommon in a college dorm, someone had had too much to drink the night before and hadn't been able to make it to the toilet. The one handicapped stall was covered with vomit. The mess was on the floor, the toilet bowl, everywhere. Normally I would have shaken my head in disgust and moved on, but an inner prompting wouldn't let me do it. Gordy couldn't just move on. The cleaning person wouldn't be in until Monday, and this was the only bathroom that Gordy could use. I had helped Gordy many times before when he had seen me, but this was a time when he needed me, but wouldn't know it and wouldn't see it. I shuffled back to the sinks and wet some paper towels and went to work. Fifteen, maybe twenty minutes later, it was done. Gordy never knew. His weekend went on as usual. The sound of his chair whizzing down the hallway continued unabated. But I was changed. Gordy's life had touched me again. Something moved inside me, and I realized not in an idealized way, but with full understanding why many monks often consider disabled people especially holy. The lessons they can teach us are profound. Sacrifice is worship, loving God by loving others. Jesus said, Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. Giving would fall in this category, giving to the Lord. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The last place of worship I'll share with you this morning is that of enthusiastic worship. Loving God with celebration. I want to read... Short passage from Luke 19, verse 37. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, speaking of Jesus, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, 
the stones will cry out. I think there is room in our worship experience for celebration. There's joy in God's presence. And we can express that joy in celebrative worship. I believe that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. John the Revelator saw that. And he recorded for us his vision in in Revelation chapter 7. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A little charismatic, don't you think? I think that we can be too subdued in our worship in that we don't celebrate the way that God would have us to celebrate, to show joy at our worship of God. We love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And our joy in rejoicing is being in God's presence. I want to challenge you today in your worship experience to love God. If we're just going through the motions, we're not worshiping. We're not worshiping God. We have not made that connection to God. With our senses, with our strength, with our minds, With our hearts, we worship God. We celebrate. We sacrifice. We adore Him. Let's worship. Let's worship God. He is honored and we are blessed. God bless you. You can call for a song at this time.